Well, it has been a week of surprises. A little bit of everything, actually. Some good, not, not anything bad, except for the stuff that was bad. Uh, just kind of a variety. One of the things uh, I think is that uh, when, I, when I experience weeks like this, when it seems like it's one thing after another, I just kind of figure this is God's way of kind of telling me jokes and seeing if I'll laugh. And, you know, the thing is that um, I think that it is funny sometimes that, uh, you know, uh, for all the things that God is, I think he also has a sense of humor. Now, the most recent surprise is that when Rich and I talked earlier in the week about uh, today's sermon, uh, we got our wires crossed, and uh, one way or another, I thought I was using a text of James chapter 1. And I come in, and this morning I get the uh, order of service and see that it's James chapters 1 through 3. So I found that out right before the first service, and uh, we did chapters 1, 2, and 3, but chapters 2 and 3 were an ad-lib. And uh, it's not going to be so much an ad-lib now, because I already did it once. But, you know, the thing is, on the heels of a week of surprises, (laughs) I get to ad-lib. Isn't that just wonderful? (laughs) The folks in the first service got a bigger laugh out of that than, than, uh, than, than I got from you guys. But trust me, I'm looking forward to what the Lord's going to have to say to us today. And let's just open with a word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you that we are here this morning. And I want to thank you that you have given us your word and access to you 24-7, 365. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us this morning. Help us to open our hearts and our minds to you. Father, I really have nothing to say to these people unless you bless it. And so I would just pray this morning that you would bless what we do here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of James is a book that has had a lot of controversy about it over the years. And the simple fact of the matter is there are some people that even thought the book of James shouldn't be in the Bible at all. Probably one of the most notable people who expressed that opinion was Martin Luther. Martin Luther referred to the book of James as an epistle of straw. In other words, worthless. He didn't even think it should be in Scripture. He softened his opinion later on, but one of the things that was his criticism and has been the criticism of so many others, is there are people who believe that the book of James teaches a theology of works. And, of course, for those of us who believe in grace, we would get pretty threatened by that. People have said that the book of James doesn't agree with what the Apostle Paul says in so many of his letters, and yet there are people who have done very serious analyses of James versus some of the things that Paul wrote, and lo and behold, they don't disagree with one another at all. It's just that you have to look at their contexts and what they're trying to say. So one of the things that I want to do today after uh, a bit is take a look at the book of James in terms of what it says and in some regards what it doesn't say. But um, there's another criticism that has been leveled at the book of James that I want to mention as well. 
And that is that people have said that there is no theme, per se, to the book of James. Maybe a lot of themes here and there, but that it's disjointed, it's disorganized, it jumps around. And so it's more or less by some looked at as a collection of things about this and things about that that really doesn't hang together. I have never quite felt that way, however, about the book of James. And I hope that as we go through some of these things this morning, uh, maybe you'll see with me that James is hanging together with his thinking here. And there are some things that are very important for us to understand. The book of James uh, it has another distinction, however. And that is that many people feel that the book of James is the first book that was ever written uh, in the New Testament. There are people who think that the book of James can be dated to as early as the early to mid-40s. Some other people think 48, 49. The book of Galatians is thought to have been written in 48 or 49. But there are a lot of people who actually feel that the book of James actually was done, written before the book of Galatians. And that makes this the first stuff that at least in our New Testament, this is the first stuff that was ever written, written by James the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, there were also a couple of other people named James that it was thought might have written this book, but all the evidence, when you take it into consideration, really don't support them as much as they support this James, the Lord's brother, as being the author of the book. He was called James the Just by some, and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem in the early days of the Christian church. So what we have here are some things that are first things in many regards, which I think in some respects makes them even more important. But there is a theme, and I think if we look at all of the themes that people have proposed for the book of James, probably the one that is an overriding good common denominator is that the book of James is about living out one's faith. Now the context of the times were such that there had already been some persecution of the Christian church. And so the church had a a bit of spreading out that happened as people would flee persecution. And so in the first verse of this book, James actually refers this letter to the members of the 12 tribes who are in what he calls the dispersion uh, also, in some of your translations, it may, see, uh, it may seem that they use another word. They might use a word called the diaspora. It simply means a spreading out is what it means. But he's writing to Jewish Christians. And as we look at the book of James, I, I think one of the things that is going to stand out is that James does try to address some practical issues. But we're going to start and stop and start and stop. Uh, and, and I think that... Uh, it might be good to kind of think about some of these things. So let's take a look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Greetings is an interesting word. Those of you who are of an age with me remember that greetings was usually the first thing that uh, said in the letter that told you you just got drafted. You know, Greetings, oh yeah, you know. But this is the use of the word greetings where he really means greetings. And he goes on then in verse 2, and he says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet 
trials of various kinds. What? Be happy whenever you have trials, whenever you've got stuff going on. Have joy. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but in your mind, raise or don't raise your hands. How many of you have joy whenever you have trials? Okay? That's not our natural reaction. It just doesn't seem that we are built like that way, you know, like that. And that way of, of having joy when stuff starts to happen is a little foreign to us. What we've heard in sermons and, and lessons, however, for many years, is that, you know, God is like a good father who disciplines the children that he loves. And so when we have trials, if that's to be viewed in any way as discipline, we should understand that that's because God loves us. We're also told that, you know what, that's a way of growing our character. When we have to go through things, we get better, we get stronger, we endure, we persevere. We do all these things, hopefully, that represent growth. Okay, let's see what James says. As we move on to verse 3, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now this word steadfastness can be translated different ways. A lot of times it's translated perseverance. Sometimes it's translated as just patient enduring. But the idea is that what James is saying is that the steadfastness that he's looking for in terms of development here is just that. It's enduring. It's putting up with these things. And it's putting up with these things and enduring for a reason. That we would become full and complete lacking in nothing. Okay? So you can already kind of see that behind this concept, James is thinking about something that God is doing. We don't necessarily understand it, but that's how the book starts off. So, what do we do? I think sometimes when faced with trials, and in this day and age, just about anything that you want to think of can be a trial. It can be a trial that you've got a test that you haven't studied for. It can be a trial that you're out of gas and you need to be someplace. It can be a trial that you get a big bill you didn't expect getting. It can be a trial that you lose your job. It can be a trial that you have an accident. I mean, just the list is, is endless when we stop to think about trials. What James says is count it all joy when that stuff happens to you. I want you to remember that the next time something does happen to you. But look at what he says in verse 5. He starts to talk in verse 5 about how to equip, how to relate to God to kind of deal with these trials. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom. All right. Um, Wisdom could be a lot of things. Wisdom sometimes means having good judgment. Sometimes it means having knowledge and using it properly. Wisdom sometimes can refer to being discerning, being able to be able to size up a situation and determine what to do. Okay, well it says in here that perhaps that's something we can ask God for, but there are some conditions. He goes on to say, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Unstable in all his ways. What I think is important about that is that it's not enough to ask for wisdom but to ask for wisdom with a mindset. How do we forge this mindset of not being prone to doubt, prone to second-guessing, prone to wavering, prone to being unstable? Well, in the Life Application Bible Commentary, they talk about some themes of the book of James, and it might be interesting to stick those things in here for the sake of discussion. They see that joyful living requires self-control and contentment. Wisdom combines what we know with what we must do. And hypocrisy occurs whenever belief and action are separated. Christians must live their faith not just talk about it. Okay. So part of praying for wisdom is looking for what those things are that help us to know and help us to know what to do with what we know. Because there is some action that is required. And that's where we start getting into this whole area with James, where many people start to worry that he's teaching a theology of works. He's really not, but let's take a look at it. You know, anybody who has ever met somebody who never can make up their mind kind of knows what doubting is sort of like. You know, I think that I should get this. No, no, maybe that one's better. No, well, this one's got that one. No, but, but that one. Then there's that one over there. Well, now I'm going to decide on this one. Well, no, but I wonder if I should have chosen the other one, and so on and so forth. James is saying you can't pray like that. You have to have some ability to move on. And so look at what he says here. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now there's a promise there. I think this takes some practice, however, because when do most of us pray? A lot of us wait to pray until we have a trial to pray about. And it's important to stop and take a look at the fact that prayer needs to be a little bit more of a consistent thing than just waiting until you have a trial. You pray when it's good, you pray when it's bad, and you pray when it's ugly, I think, is part of what's woven into this this text. You pray all the time. You develop some ability to begin to recognize how to go to God with the requests, even for wisdom. So then we come with some more explanations on the way, but James hits us with one of these places where it looks like he goes off on a tangent. In verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And then he follows up this theme. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. 
so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, why all of a sudden is James talking to us about the rich man and the poor man? Why is he saying that the poor man needs to be exalted in his poverty and the rich man in his humiliation? It's kind of a way of, I think, James coming to us and saying, look, each of these groups of people will have trials. No one is immune from trials. And so in that state you find yourself, learn to be content. Because when it comes to dealing with trials, temporal things mean nothing. Your bank account means nothing. Your car means nothing. Your position means nothing. Your friends and neighbors mean nothing from the standpoint of being able to do what God is the only one to do for you. doesn't mean that those other things have anything the matter with them. But he's basically saying learn to be content in the situation where you are and learn to glory in whatever happens. And on top of that, you know, just really look at the fact that, uh, you know, these things really don't matter. Now, there were some people who kind of, as we'll see in a little bit, tended to play favorites. But with this whole situation, the church, it was made up of rich people and poor people. Everybody having trials, everybody supposedly kind of in a position to help each other. And so here again is James talking about, at least without labeling it trials, the prospect that there will be trials. So again, he changes his tune. And out here in verse 12, he says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, I think that's a big verse. He says steadfast, and in the New American Standard they say perseveres. This is made up of two words in the Greek that actually are two very interesting words. Hupo, which means under, and meno, which means to stay, remain, or abide. It's one of the Apostle John's favorite words. We see John in John's Gospel and in his letters use this word meno, abide, a lot. And so one of the things that you might even recall from John 8.31 is, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And in other places, that word abide comes up. One of the things that the New American Standard tries to convey, maybe a little better than the English Standard Version, is that when a person perseveres under trial, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him, but he has to abide in that process. And in that regard, not run away from it, not shirk the opportunity to do what God has called him to do. And so it's interesting to look at the fact that what James seems to be saying is that when we face trials, don't run away from them. Stay close to the Father, pray for what you need, be in the Word, and get right up next to that trial. Interestingly enough, one of the first times I ever taught anybody anything in this church was when I was about 10 years old, and there was a lady by the name of Dorothy Veerman that used to love to put me in front of people. And for one reason or another, she thought that I could do it. And so I got stuck doing a lesson once. 
And in the process of doing the lesson, one of the things that I did is I consulted a book which my mother had, and it talked about dealing with trials, and it talked about the strategy for how to get spanked. You get as close to the person with the switch as you can, and you just throw your arms around their waist because it reduces their leverage. And the fact is, I got this out of a Christian book. But the point was, don't run away from trials. Just go right straight in. Take all of the resources that God gives you and just throw your arms around them. Now this, I think, is a very interesting thing when we stop and take a look at that word to be under and to actually abide, remain, you know, get close to. So let's see what we do. In verse 13, we see that James is actually a pretty good psychologist because he's going to tell us some things about human nature. He's just told us that we have a blessing and a crown of life that's promised to us for enduring under trial. But look what he says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now this is some pretty good awareness of what people are like. Okay? Again, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but you know you may have experienced what James just described. And what's he saying here on the heels of verse 12? He's saying that, you know, don't be deceived by thinking that somehow this trial is some terrible thing that God's doing to you, but it is an opportunity for you to rely on God. Here again, I think it's a a theme that's coming out, that as we look at how to live out our faith, one of the things that we do is we rely on God and we recognize that our own motives and our own build is to do exactly the opposite. That's just not the way we're really built. And so as James continues, he looks as if he's going to change topics on us again. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Okay. So he's just talked about us actually being steadfast under trials. He's just warned us not to rely on our own resources and our own human nature to somehow get us through it. But now he's talking about good gifts. What I find interesting here is that the word gift is a word agathos, which means good, generous, and kind. This is a great word, and it shows up in a particular episode in the, in the book of Luke where the rich young ruler comes to Christ and says, Good teacher. That's how he addresses Christ, and Christ says, Why do you call me good? 
There's only one good, and that's the Father. Here we see James saying that good gifts come from the Father, who is good. There is no one else, there is nothing else of which you can say in the universe that it is good, perfectly holy, completely good, without flaw, except God. And so James is kind of saying, look, from this God comes good, come good gifts. And these gifts are part of what help us deal with with trials. In fact, the greatest gift of all, and we can see between the lines here, is the gift of salvation. And in regard to that, he refers to first fruits and first fruits as if those Christians to whom he is writing are the believers who are the first fruits. In other words, they will be the representation of the fact that there will be more to follow. And so in the early days of the Christian church, what we see is James acknowledging that the church is going to get a whole lot bigger. It's one more reason to admonish these people to stand up under the trials that they're facing and to pray. You know, the fact is that another place that I look to try and find a consistent theme for the book of James talked about prayer. This month we're involved in considering prayer and concentrating on prayer. And what this particular author said, prayer is the proper response to trials. You have a trial? Pray. Your basement's flooded? Pray. You don't know how you're going to pay that bill or deal with that neighbor who is suing you for uh, the fact that your tree hangs over their property line? Pray. Max Lucado and I think I mentioned this the last time I was up here, has developed a thing that he calls the pocket prayer. Not that it's a be-all and end-all of prayer, but it's a thing that is a stimulus to pray. And the pocket prayer goes something like this. Father, you are good. I need help. They need help. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just that simple. What Lucado did is he looked at all the prayers that he could find in the Bible and he boiled them down to what he felt were the common elements of prayer. And he condensed it into that pocket prayer which really has them all. Now the interesting thing is we can't pray if we're just using that prayer to be self-seeking. If it's just to get what we want, or if it's just to go ahead and kind of pad our motives, then that's not the idea here. The idea is that it should be central in life in all circumstances, and that it's part of how we would respond to trials. But um, unfortunately here, James is going to be a psychologist again, and he's going to show us in these next verses how we very often respond to trials. Starting um, in verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now there is how we usually respond to trials, okay? We get lit up instantly. We may react I mean, I react, okay? Some of you might not 
know me as well as others, but I've got a pretty good trigger, and if you pull that trigger, guess what? I'm not who you think I am in a lot of ways. That's the way we respond to trials. And James knows that, and he says, look, you've got to watch it, because put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You know, don't get angry. Now, if I wasn't getting ready to ad lib, we would go to the Psalms and to Ephesians to talk about anger a little bit, but I'm getting ready to ad lib, so, all right. Um, but he just comes right out and says, you've got to watch what you do when you're dealing with trials because your normal tendency, my normal tendency, is not to pray, not to ask for wisdom, not to go straight to the Word all the time, but my tendency is to react. So he changes subjects again. And in verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now this is one of the places where people start to get upset with the book of James. Because, you know, don't just hear what the word is telling you, but do something about it. Ah, there it is. Grace plus works. You've got to do something to earn your salvation, right? Wrong. James is not saying anything like that. But what he is saying is that, you know, you really have to stop and look at the fact that there are things to do. Even the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.10 said that we were to have good works. There are good works that we as believers have been appointed to do. So James and Paul don't disagree with one another. James is putting it in a different way, in a different situation to different people here. But he goes on and he says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, what is interesting about this is that we can kind of take a look at the difference between a hearer and a doer. And James really does something here that I think I've missed before, but I want to just point out to you all so that you see it clearly. First of all, he talks about the hearer that just looks like at his own face in a mirror. What's he focused on? Focused on himself. The hearer who just hears looks at himself and begins to kind of wonder and worry, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with this? What do I muster that is going to allow me to go ahead and master whatever this trial is? Okay? But look at what is characteristic of the doer. The doer looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. What James is referring to here is that law which was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law in the gospel. And he's looking at the fact that what you have in that law of liberty at that time that you understand who you are and what you represent is that you have an opportunity to preach a sermon by dealing with the trials that you're facing in the way that God would want you to deal with the trials. 
And in the process of looking at that, what you also have is an opportunity to not be a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Now the interesting thing about that is that that's not inconsistent with the theology of grace at all, but it's very consistent with the fact that once we have that great gift of salvation, we have things to do, people to serve. If you look back at John thirteen seventeen, I believe it is, the Lord is basically, after he's just washed the disciples' feet, um, the Lord is commenting on the fact that blessed is the condition of the person who serves others. We get some of that sense here in this passage of what James is saying. And so then we move on to verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It kind of goes back with verses 19 to 21. It's kind of a footnote. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Visit orphans and widows. Serve people. Kind of a footnote to verses 22 to 25. What James seemed to be saying in chapter 1 is when you're confronted with trials, get busy. Now let's look at chapter 2. Because if we look at chapter 2 and drop down to verse 8, James is going to follow up a little bit after he's done some talking here about the fact that, you know, there is a problem that might exist in the church with people being partial. And in verse 8 he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. I think this is interesting because of the fact that here he's talking again about a kind of service, not showing partiality, but he's saying that we could be doing everything right, and if we do show partiality, we now are guilty of really having broken the whole law for all intents and purposes. James is simply saying, look, you've got your trials, they have their trials, but everybody in fellowship needs to be showing the proper attitudes to each other in order to support each other through those trials. And we drop on down in chapter 2, and he goes on so far as to say, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now here's another one of those places where people get really upset with James. A lot of times I think back on the fact that I had a car once upon a time that was a sports car. It was, it was beautiful. It was red. It had a beige leather interior. It was a Porsche. It had the little shield on the front, the whole thing. Okay? It looked classic. It was the biggest bucket of bolts I ever owned in my life. That thing sometimes couldn't even get up a hill. The, the, the thing was so bad. And the, the, the thing is, if you looked at it, there it is. Looks like a Porsche, is a Porsche, but as far as function, 
it wasn't so good. And there were a few times it was, in fact, dead. Now look at this. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verse 26 of chapter 2, For the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Something's there, but it's not useful. It's not functioning. It's not doing what it was intended to do by any stretch of the imagination. And so James is combining that prospect of having faith, but then preaching that sermon by having the works that go along with it. Which then sets us up for chapter 3. Here some people really feel that James goes off on a total tangent, but he's not. Because in chapter 3, verse 1, James actually addresses a group of people, a specific group of people. Now before we get into this, or let's look at verse 1 first and then we'll get into it. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So now I'm preaching to myself. And any of you who actually teach or preach or or who want to, look at what James just said. We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Well, I thought we were talking about trials. The word trial can be translated as temptation. It can also be translated as test. You know, we know that sometimes what happens is we don't pass the tests that God gives us. But here's one. For those of you who want to teach, my brothers, you know you're going to be judged with greater strictness. Now what happens in the rest of chapter 3, some people say gets kind of disjointed, but it doesn't. Chapter 3 hangs together very well. Because in the next verses, after verse 1, all the way down through verse 12, what James talks about is something that he's already talked about in terms of dealing with trials. And that is controlling what you say. Controlling your tongue. Now for those of us who get up in front of people, this is a big deal. Because some people, you give them a microphone and there is no telling what they might say or where they might go. One of my pet peeves was when I used to watch the Academy Awards and somebody would go up to get their award and then completely out of left field, they've got the microphone, they decide to go ahead and rant about whatever their political agenda is. has nothing to do about their award, but somebody gave them a stage and a microphone. James kind of goes on and it really fits. He's saying, don't do that. You know, the tongue is a small member, but it can boast of great things. Watch what you say. You know, this is your trial, perhaps. He's talking to a specific group of people about a specific kind of test. And he says very clearly, you know, this is not your chance to have a soapbox. You want a soapbox? Go to Hyde Park. They'll let you talk about anything. But it's your opportunity to teach. Behave yourself. But then it gets better in the rest of the chapter because in the last part of the chapter, one of the things that James does is he goes ahead and starts talking about ambition. 
Let me read just starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Teaching, preaching, being a lecturer someplace even, you know, it doesn't have to be in the church, but taking that role does not mean this is your chance to make a name for yourself. It is not your opportunity to gain a following. It is not the opportunity to go ahead and get your picture in, your, in the paper or an award on your wall. The idea here is to watch what you say and don't let your opportunity to teach, especially given the scripture that you're given to handle, be just your chance to feed your ambitions. Some of the words that James uses here are pretty strong, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So what's he doing? What is James saying to us here? He's saying that trials come in a lot of different forms. Sometimes we don't necessarily even think of them as trials, but they are. And we're to watch what we do. Have a mindset that honors God, that seeks God, that asks Him for wisdom. In faith, not doubting. Go to the Word. Stay in prayer. Run toward trials, not away from them. And in fact, we need to watch not only our mindset and our mouths and our motives, but we need to watch the fact that as we preach sermons to people who are watching how we as believers deal with trials, we have to be concerned with what kind of a sermon we're preaching. And that sermon doesn't necessarily have to happen from a pulpit. That handles on, happens on Main Street. It happens in the classroom. It happens on the assembly line. So as we stop and think this morning about James and what he has to say to us about dealing with trials... I hope that when you are faced with your next trial or when you continue to face the trials that you may have, and I'm, I'm on my case about this, so it's not that I'm excluding myself from this. Go to God in prayer. Go to the Word. Thank Him for all the good gifts that come from Him. And I think that um, trials don't have to be something to lament Maybe they can be something that we can have joy over. In fact, I would pray that that's going to be true for you. Let's, uh, let's end in a word of prayer as the band comes up. Father, thank you for what you do for us. Thank you for being good. Thank you for giving us so much. Father, help us to love you and to do what honors you. Father, help us to have faith, but help us to act as you want us to act and do the things you've appointed for us to do. Father, we'll pray for the strength. And we'll thank you for the victory. In Jesus' name, amen.